Welcome to Cancer HealthCast, where science is driving hope. I'm Ross Joffertune. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christine Aylwine. Dr. Aylwine is an NIH Lasker Scholar in the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, the Center for Cancer Research within the National Cancer Institute. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm delighted to be here. So tell me a little bit about your role at the National Cancer Institute and relatedly, Mm -hmm. any initiatives that you're currently working on to advance pancreatic cancer research. So I am a medical oncologist, um, which means that I treat people that are diagnosed with cancer. Um, I specialize in GI cancer, specifically in pancreas cancer. And um, so I have early stage clinical trials where we're um, looking at novel new drugs that could potentially um, help patients who have advanced pancreas cancer. Um, I also have a small lab where in general, we look at combinations of those drugs to try and um, see if we can come up with something that could be more efficacious. What are the different types of pancreatic cancer and what are some of the tools being used to detect this disease early? Yeah. So pancreas cancer, um, when we talk about it, and people just say the word pancreas cancer without specifying anything else, they're usually talking about pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So about 85 to 90% of all pancreas cancers are of the adenocarcinoma kind, and that's the one that dominates the statistics and what people mean unless they specify others, uh, other words with there. So there are also a group of pancreatic cancers that arise from the neuroendocrine cells of the pancreas, and they're called PNETs or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. And that's about 5 to 10% of pancreas cancers. And then there's another group of very rare tumors um, that, um, like the um, pancreas adenocarcinoma, they come from the part of the pancreas that is important in making digestive enzymes, um, but they're rarer and um, a little stranger than, um, than the adenocarcinoma we're used to seeing. So those are the different types. Um, like you were saying, diagnosing pancreas cancer um, usually happens pretty late. And so by late, what I mean is that um, most patients that are diagnosed, their tumor is grown to a point where um, we can't cure it, um, either because it's grown into important structures that can't be cut out, um, that and you need surgery uh, in part to cure pancreas cancer, or it's spread to distant organs. And um, once again, you can't cut it out. Um, So, you know, why does that happen? Um, So when you're talking about trying to find a pancreas cancer early, um, the the symptoms that people have, a lot of times they don't come up until it's it's more advanced. Um, And so People just don't know it's there. Um, and, you know, a few, some people are lucky enough that it still is in what we call early stages when they're diagnosed and they have the potential for cure. Um, one of the most important things to point out, though, is that although we talk about pancreas cancer having a bad prognosis because most people get diagnosed late, we don't do a great job of curing people with early stage disease either. Um, and so it's as, it's, maybe not even 30% of patients with early stage disease are, are cured of it. Um, so it's, it's, we still have a lot of work to do for, for all of that. So regarding detecting the disease early and, and mm-hmm. sort of relatedly, research does suggest that genetics are uh, more closely tied to cancer than perhaps previously thought. So a patient experiencing pancreas cancer 
why is it important for that person to have a conversation about genetic testing with their medical doctors? Yeah, so so it's um, a new recommendation as of a few years ago for, for all patients with pancreas cancer to have that conversation. Um, in the past, we've thought that if you didn't have other family members with pancreas cancer, it was unlikely that it was caused in you by a gene that was passed down, you know, from your parents or other people in your family or that you had. And now we understand that there are a good number of people who are diagnosed with pancreas cancer where they don't have other family members that have the disease, but they do have a gene that can be passed on um, to their children. Um, because it can be, you know, maybe even as high as 15% of people who have pancreas cancer, um, it's now recommended that we that we talk to patients about that to see whether it's something um, that's that's worth them getting tested. Um, a lot of the times that depends on whether they have other close family members who could be affected and could potentially join a screening program um, to make sure that their pancreas cancer gets detected as early as possible. Um, when it's still curable, if they were to get the disease. What are the current standards of care at all stages of pancreas cancer? And can you tell us more about the mRNA vaccine and the other advances in immunotherapy that could potentially help with a cure? Okay, so so pancreas cancer is treated we sort of think of it as having three different treatment paradigms. So there's the patients that have disease that's confined to the pancreas um, and that surgeons can take out. Um, the standard of care is for those patients to get surgery followed by chemotherapy as an insurance against the disease coming back anywhere else. And um, we know that with surgery alone, it definitely does come back. Um, Right now, officially, um, one's supposed to get their chemotherapy after surgery, but there are a lot of studies going on to find out if giving the chemotherapy before surgery um, might actually be more beneficial and cure more patients. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is, is that after the surgery, it's harder for people to tolerate the chemotherapy and to do well on it than maybe beforehand. And the other is, is since we know that there's little seeds of cancer that are out there that we can't see, even in patients you know, who have early stage disease, if we were to treat those with the chemotherapy as soon as possible, um, that maybe that would, would keep them from growing, whereas you know, surgery um, would, not be, would not be treating those. But we're still waiting to see um, which side of the surgery uh, chemo should be given on. Then there are patients who their tumor, we can only see that it's in the pancreas, but it's grown into some important vessels that are nearby. And so the surgeons are having, they can't really remove it very easily. So in those patients, they get chemotherapy first to see if we can shrink the tumor enough that the surgeons can remove all of it. Um, and then the last group of patients are those where we know that the pancreas cancer is already spread beyond the pancreas. Um, we know that we don't have a treatment right now that can cure them, but the chemotherapy treatments that we do have um, can help them to live longer and can also reduce their symptoms. And so I think the thing that you've noticed that I've said in all three cases is that chemotherapy, chemotherapy, chemotherapy. Um, we've not had a lot of success in pancreas cancer in having um, targeted therapies or immunotherapies work. So right now, um, 
there's a small number of patients, so less than 1%, um, who have uh, what we call microsatellite instability, where something like an immunotherapy that causes the immune system to attack the cancer um, can actually be very beneficial. And there's um, a reasonable number of patients, probably somewhere between 5 and 10%, who have mutations in their tumor that cause them to have problems with repairing their DNA, and they can use a specific targeted drug called um, a PARP inhibitor in addition to um, chemotherapy um, to, to, to help control the tumor. Um, but there's not historically been a lot of other treatments other than chemotherapy for pancreas cancer. That's begun to change. Um, there are now new KRAS inhibitor drugs that are coming out in trial and we're expecting could be helpful in almost all pancreas cancer patients because over 90% of pancreas adenocarcinoma um, has um, the, the that mutation, and these drugs could be helpful for that. And um, there's also um, very recently, like you were talking about, been some interesting very early stage studies where patients with um, resectable disease that the surgeons can come in and take out um, have been able to get um, vaccine against things that are in their tumor that are not part of the regular cells in their body. And it looks like in these early uh, stage tumors that maybe patients could be living longer, but it's hard to know because there's no, no comparison group right now. So, you know, what do I mean by that with what's a cancer vaccine? Um, so the difference, you know, between a vaccine that we give for something like COVID or infectious diseases is that you're giving a vaccine to boost the immune system against something that a person doesn't yet have. So a, a, a virus that they're not infected with. Um, when we're giving vaccines in cancer, we're trying to boost the immune system to fight against the cancer that's already there, if that makes, if that makes any sense. Um, and so if you're trying to make a vaccine against a cancer that's already in the body, these are all the same person's cells, right? So, so how do you dis, how are they different than the regular cells? So you have to, it, it's it, you have to find the things that are different about the the new cells, and um, you have to point them out to the immune system so that they can tell the difference between what are good cells and what are bad cancer cells, so that the immune system can then come and fight them. And you know, these new data are making us think that maybe in early stage disease when People don't have anything that's big enough that we can see on imaging studies or that we can really know is there that the immune system can be revved up to fight those little tiny pockets of tumor that, you know, we can't see, but we know are there and are going to come back and kill somebody. That's absolutely interesting to hear about mm -hmm. the ways that the mm -hmm. immune system, you know, will be uh, used to <laughs> move within uh, cancer treatments, particularly with regards to you know, pancreas cancer. For my own edification, the immune system yeah. absolutely fascinates me. It's it's completely yeah. interesting, especially when it comes to these cancers or things that are not resectable, not able to be removed. Before we conclude, is there anything that we you know that we haven't covered that you'd like our listeners to to know about? Um, so the first thing is, is that with what I was just talking about, we're talking specifically about the most common kind of pancreas cancer, which is pancreas adenocarcinoma. There's other ways that those other types of pancreas cancer that we mentioned get treated, um, and they're not necessarily the same. 
Um, so those are those are those are sort of important considerations there. Um, the other thing is is that you know one of the ways where we could um, we could help more people is if there were more people who were able to be diagnosed earlier in this process. And there's um, a lot of work being done to try and find a blood test or um, some kind of screening test that would allow us to find people um, with pancreas cancer earlier. The biggest problem is, is although pancreas cancer is now the third leading cause of cancer death in the US, it's still a very rare tumor. And so when you make, anytime you make a test, um, there's a certain rate of telling somebody that um, they don't have the disease that you're looking for when they actually do, or of telling them that they do have the disease or they might when they actually don't. Um, and when you're when there's only a very small number of people in the population that you're testing, the how how good your test has to be gets much much harder um, in order for it to be efficient, right? Because who wants to be told that they might have pancreas cancer and then find out that they don't? <laughs> so even if the test is ninety nine percent good, if you're giving it to everyone in the general population, you'd have to for like every one real case of pancreas cancer you'd find, you would have to tell like about 90 people that they might have pancreas cancer when they don't. And so those odds aren't very good. So the way to put those odds in our favor is to try and find which groups of people are at highest risk for getting pancreas cancer because then the chances of that happening get smaller because the number of people that you're testing is smaller and the chance of them having the disease is higher. So one of the things that's been noticed, um, besides that there are families that have pancreas cancer that runs through them that you know already um, can go to centers to get um, screening for pancreas cancer, is that there's probably about 1% of patients who have new diagnosis of diabetes um, and it's not your normal run-in-the-mill diabetes. It's actually being caused um, by pancreas cancer because the cells that um, that uh, help control your that make insulin that helps control your sugar are in the pancreas, and pancreas cancer affects them. Um, so there's new initiatives to test these new sampling methods to, to try and find pancreas cancer early, specifically in um, people who have a new diagnosis of diabetes, um, because that's a, there's certain people that are hiding in that group that actually um, have diabetes because they have pancreas cancer. Um, but most, most of them don't, 99% of them don't, but 1% of people with new diagnosis of diabetes may have pancreas cancer. And so we're, there's a lot of focus on that population to try and find a, a, a test um, that can um, diagnose pancreas cancer early. Early diagnosis seems to be mm -hmm. one of the key points here, and and that's certainly mm -hmm. something that uh, we'll be following. And, and, yeah. and you know, absolutely one interesting. Of the, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things is, though, is even if you say that one of these tests come back early, the next step of that is trying to figure out how do you find the cancer that's there. Um, and so one of the most difficult things with pancreas cancer, even people who we think have it, is Many times our CT scans or MRIs, it's very hard to tell that there's something there in the pancreas. It's a really 
difficult um, place to image. Um, and that's, you know, sort of how we find it's there. Um, and so there's a lot of efforts by radiologists um, to make new um, artificial intelligence computer programs that can help them to distinguish a tumor in the pancreas, even when it's smaller than what he, or 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 it's too too difficult for human eyes to see. And that's another important step that's needed in order for us to really be able to diagnose people well. Um, because even if the blood test is positive, if you can't figure out whether where it is or where it's there, then you know it's it's hard to know whether to move forward. Yeah, you can't uh, you can't treat what you can't find for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. The biggest news out there right now is definitely the KRAS inhibitors because um, we've been waiting. 50 years for something to drug the undruggable target. <laughs> the pharmaceutical sure. companies had all given up on it. And, you know, now, you know, the first of those, the G12C inhibitors are already approved by the FDA um, for lung cancer. There's only 3% of pancreas cancer patients that have that particular mutation. But the new ones that have just started in clinical trial now are directed at the KROS mutations that most pancreas cancer patients have. And so everyone in the field is very excited um, to see what's going to happen with those, um, you know, and so it, it's definitely something where we feel like we're on the brink of, of something changing where we'd have more than chemotherapy to offer. <laughs> yeah. Chemotherapy mm. is certainly nothing, mm. um, nothing easy and, and not something I think anyone wants yeah. to jump into quickly. It's really, it's really kind of crazy because even, you know, you know, the biggest advance on that side was, you know, really when the Fulfirinox regimen came out about 10 or 12 years ago. And it's a, you know, it's a three chemo drug regimen that people have to get every two weeks and carry on a fanny pack. And it, you know, it has a risk of people dying from sepsis and it causes nausea and, you know, diarrhea and all sorts of symptoms. And, you know, it does extend survival in pancreas cancer. And one of the things that many people said was, I mean, how is this actually making people feel better? I mean, it's not curing them when you're giving it to patients who have disease that's grown beyond the pancreas. Um, but surprisingly, when um, the quality of life survey was done as, as part of the original study, patients who got the chemo had a better quality of life than those that didn't. And, you know, I sort of felt that that was very telling. It's, it's, it says a lot about how miserable having pancreas cancer makes you feel um, when it's not under control. It actually, if people who are getting this very rigorous chemotherapy regimen and it's working against their cancer, you know, are telling you that they're feeling better than than the people who are, are getting a less effective, you know, less toxic single agent. Um, and, you know, that's, yeah. Well, Dr. Elwine, thanks so much for being on the on the show with us. Okay. <laughs> Thank you guys. Healthcast, along with GovCast and Cybercast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.